Ni hao. Hi, my name is Kylie Jones, and I'm a senior international studies major at Pepperdine University. Welcome to Global Tides, a podcast where I interview Pepperdine faculty and students who have produced excellent social science research with an international component. In an increasingly interconnected world, Global Tides seeks to illuminate the importance of cross-cultural studies for dismantling stereotypes, encouraging empathy, and reaching peace. This is episode two. China's rise on the international stage has captivated the international relations field for decades. One interesting way this rise has manifested is in its changing role in international organizations, or IOs. It has pushed for higher voting quotas, started its own IOs, and most significantly has sought leadership in a variety of specialized IO agencies. Is China opting for a unique strategy in this regard? Has China been able to use IO leadership to exert state power and influence on the international stage? More broadly, does leadership in international organizations matter? Today, I sit down with Dr. Felicity Fabulous, Associate Professor of International Studies at Pepperdine University, and Josh Sullivan, Junior International Studies and Economics double major, as they seek to understand the impact of China's increasing leadership of international organizations. Welcome, y'all. Thanks. It's so great to be here on a rainy, rainy day in Malibu. Very rainy day. Very rainy day. How are you doing, Josh? Uh, I'm doing well. Yeah, like Dr. Vavula said, it was a, it was a nice walk up here in the rain. <laughs> I love the rain, so right. I didn't mind it too much. I know. Awesome. We don't get it often enough here. Um, I'm super excited to dive into the work that you've been doing. I was, I was fascinated reading all about it. It's something I had never really considered before. So first, before we start to dig into your research a little bit, can you each tell me about your background, um, your research interests, and your involvement at Pepperdine? Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to be here today. I am Felicity Vabulous, as Kylie mentioned, and I'm finishing up my fifth year here at Pepperdine. And it's great to be back here in the classroom after all of the disruptions related to COVID. I was just telling Kylie that this time last year when I was recording for the podcast. We were doing it over Zoom in a closet. Um, so it's it's great to be here. Um, but outside the classroom at Pepperdine, some of the things that I'm involved with on campus include running the Women in International Studies speaker series. We've had some terrific people here on campus this year. I advise our outstanding Model UN team. I'm going to be traveling with Kylie um, next weekend to New York City. And I also chair our Committee on Women Faculty. A um, couple little personal things. I'm originally from Australia. I guess that's what gives me my international street cred. And I spent a good chunk of my early adult life in and around the Chicago area where I received my PhD at the University of Chicago. And on to Josh Sullivan, who is my terrific research assistant this year. Hi, all. It's good to be here. Like Dr. Vabulous said, I'm Josh Sullivan. I'm an international studies major with an emphasis on global politics, and I'm in my third year at Pepperdine. Um, uh, while I've been here, I've been able to participate in some really great programs like Model UN, which Dr. Vabulous leads. And I'm also an editor for the International Studies and Languages Division of Global Tides, which is our undergraduate research journal. It's been really great to read all of the student submissions this year and publish some wonderful undergraduate research. 
Awesome. As mentioned before, it's so glad to have y'all both here in the studio today. Um, so let's get into the research. Um, obviously, not all of our listeners are in international studies or international relations. So if you had to summarize your research into a snappy soundbite for all of those listeners, what would it be? Well, I think the snappy soundbite would be this. I don't think there's a single person who doesn't recognize that China is trying to rise in power on the international stage. What we're interested in is how China is specifically trying to push their influence within international organizations. And in particular, we want to know whether the nationality of those IO leaders, we're probably going to use that acronym a lot, IO for international organizations, whether that actually makes a difference in the outcomes of those organizations and how the nationality of the leaders has actually changed over time. So the significance of China's rise in the international community has been a topic that has been discussed for decades. So can you take us back to the beginning for you? What kind of catalyzed this project and led you to your particular research questions? You're absolutely right, Kylie. The significance of China's rise has been chronicled by a lot of academics and policy experts, and many observers have examined China's economic and military ascension. So we wanted to do something a little bit different and take a deep dive into international organizations. So we're not the first to look at China's role in IOs. For example, many people know that China has increased their funding to IOs like the United Nations. In 2020, China provided 12% of the UN's operating budget and 20% of their peacekeeping budget, which you know is a, is a pretty substantial figure. It's second only to the United States. And in addition to this increase in funding, China's tried to vie for more IO power by pushing for higher voter, voting quotas in situations like the International Monetary Fund. And it's created its own institutions like the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank to fund its Belt and Roads Initiative. That's, that's exactly right. Um, but in summer of uh, 2020, I noticed a couple of different media and think tank pieces that were pretty alarmist in nature. And what they were pointing out is that Chinese officials held directorship positions in four of the 15 United Nations specialized agencies. So, for example, like the International Labor Organization is one of those. And the reason that they were writing about this is that China was actually poised to earn a fifth leadership position. And I actually hadn't realized that. And I study international organizations in lots of ways. And at first I thought, you know, wow, that's that's actually really significant. But then I took a step back and sort of checked myself and realized I didn't know of any academic research that had actually examined whether the nationality of these leaders of international organizations matters. And I, I think it's really important, right, not to overreact. I think it's easy to look at some of these recent blips, you know, that that the media and think tanks pay attention to and assume that a trend is occurring, right? But we really don't know that until we actually look back over time. So what I wanted to do was bring an empirical approach to bear. We don't want to just assume that IO leadership is a vehicle for power. Instead, I think that we need to understand how those patterns might be changing and try to find ways to measure whether the nationality of leadership actually matters. So you kind of hinted at it in your previous answer that um, – this has been a field that hasn't particularly been explored too thoroughly. Um, so can you kind of touch on, has there been much research done on international organizations' leadership? And what does your research that you're currently working on uniquely contribute to this field? You're right, Kylie. I think the best research kind of fills a void, but you also want to be able to bridge to previous research. 
So a lot of what has been done is quite anecdotal, to be honest. So if we think about China, for example, some observers have argued that China used their leadership of, say, the International Civil Aviation Organization, that's ICAO, uh, to bend the rules and sway actions in their favor, including um, by excluding Taiwan from membership and then trying to cover up some Chinese hacks. This research also has some importance for understanding how the perception of the leaders of an organization may affect other states' actions. So there are various examples of states threatening to withdraw from IOs to protest IOs' leadership. During the 2018 election for the new Interpol chief, concerns about a Russian election winner led Ukraine to warn it might suspend its membership and led Lithuania's parliament to vote unanimously to consider leaving Interpol as well should Russia win. Moreover, when China had a candidate running for the director general position of the World Intellectual Property Organization, or the WIPO, critics warned that Chinese leadership of the WIPO could have dire consequences for intellectual property, technology, and economic competition. And the United States was very opposed to this Chinese candidate that was running and threw a lot of support behind the candidate from Singapore who ended up winning the election. Yeah, absolutely. So can you explain how a state may achieve leadership positions in these international organizations? Are they typically elected and nominated? How does that process work? I'm really, I'm really glad you asked this because it varies a lot by organization. And it's something that our research actually tries to document. And I think it's really important to show how the different voting rules are in each organization and, and how that might matter. So let me just give you an example. Um, In the IMF, the managing director serves a five-year term that's selected by the executive board. And it's interesting because there's sort of a gentleman's agreement of sorts that means that the leader is always a European. But in other UN specialized agencies, um, say the Food and Agriculture Organization, the director general serves a four-year term And countries first submit nominations, and then they have to win through a majority vote. But there's a lot of informal norms that also really matter, including rotating through different regional groupings. So I think this is one where the devil is really in the detail. Initially, leadership of international organizations may seem like an unconventional projection of state power. State power is often associated with more material sources of wealth and power like military might. But what are some ways a country can leverage their leadership positions within these organizations to achieve their goals or exert influence? I think you're absolutely right, Kylie. This is a really good question because we do typically think of state power as being more confined to the realms of military and economy, and this is something that's a little bit outside of that. And I think that's why we think this is such an important research topic. We want to ask, has China picked up on a way they can project power that others haven't capitalized on yet? And that's really the heart of what we're trying to get to. So there isn't a lot of research related to how leadership and IOs matter, but we are able to lean on some related literature to help us build some theory. First, we know that states within leadership positions can gain agenda-setting power within institutions. And this means they have a lot of control over what gets discussed and when. And this can have a pretty serious effect on outcomes. You can think of a similar organization in thinking about committees in the U.S. Congress. For example, the leader of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations has this power. They get to set the agenda and they get to determine what's talked about and when it's discussed. So we want to see whether and how this extends to IOs. 
So if we put all this together, individual I.O. leaders can help broker coalitions, lobby for changes in budgets and funding, and even help select staff, all of which can have a pretty monumental effect on the outcomes of I.O.s. I really liked that analogy with domestic politics, Josh. And I think it's also important to emphasize that we think that there's a softer way that leaders can gain power in IOs. And this is harder for people to try to understand, but I think it's something we all kind of know, right? That states can project which norms they think are appropriate and which ideas will gain attention in the institution. They, they have what's called the bully pulpit, right? That gives them more ability to share their beliefs. But really, the dearth of research on leadership in IOs comes from the fact that a lot of international relations scholars don't tend to pay much attention to the role of individuals. We pay a lot more attention to states. And this complex web of interests and influences it what, is what makes our research really tricky, as what we have to do is find a way to isolate the influence of leaders and in particular their nationality, as opposed to a whole host of other leadership traits that might also matter like political skill or their ability to mediate negotiations or even their policy expertise, technical knowledge, gender and age. I think what I'm most excited about is leaning on some scholarship related to international courts. Um, what this research is doing is looking at whether the nationality of judges on these international courts affects rulings. And what we lean on there is we find, or others have found, I should say, that judges in the International Court of Justice do tend to vote more in favor with their own states, as well as in favor of states with similar levels of wealth, political systems, and cultures. How is China's rise in power correlated with its leadership of international organizations? How, if all, has China's role in international organizations changed over time? And what do you think can explain this phenomenon? So I think we've touched on some of this already, but the key is to think about the fact that observers have always recognized that states use IOs as a means to push their national interests. The implication of this is that as China becomes more powerful and gains more prominence on the world stage and within IOs, we should understand their leaders less as individual actors and more as pawns of their states. Uh, that said, I think there is a reason to be cautious because it's not always clear that states will be able to operationalize these leadership roles into increased power. So one of the ways we're digging in is by doing a case study of one of the 15 UN specialized agencies. Like Dr. Fabulous said earlier, China uh, up until recently held leadership in four out of the 15 specialized agencies. Um, so we're trying to find some hard evidence of changed outcomes. The idea is that we will compare years when China had a leadership role to years when they did not lead. So we picked the World Health Organization because we have a lot of data on this IO's annual spending, as well as some of their policy preferences. It's a pretty public um, agency as opposed to some of the more obscure ones like the International Telecommunications Union or something like that. Um, so we're trying to understand whether the WHO spending leans more towards pro-China countries or pro-China policies when China's in charge. And we're also looking at member states' contributions to the WHO during Chinese leadership to see if we can find a trend in donation patterns. Uh, the WHO budget comes about 75% from voluntary contributions from states. So we're asking, do some states give more or less when China is in power? So I'm very curious. 
Have any of your findings surprised you? Is there anything that you found as you're researching that kind of made you think, wow, this really defied how I thought about the world or what I expected? I love this question so much. Um, This is still very much a work in progress, and we still have a lot more work to do. But we do have some surprises. Uh, One of the first exercises we did was to document every leader at all 15 specialized agencies going back to 1945. That might sound kind of boring, but I think getting a lay of the land or doing descriptive statistics is a really good first exercise. So when we looked at the data, we were actually really surprised. France had had the most leadership roles more than any other country, even more than the U.S., We were also surprised by how many what I call middle powers tend to have these leadership positions also. So countries like Switzerland, Australia, and Canada, maybe that shouldn't have surprised us so much because I think countries might be realizing that states are able to use their influence. And so maybe they're choosing sort of more middle of the road or diplomatically uh, neutral countries to lead. And I think that we're also surprised by some you know, curious emissions. I think it's always important. I talk to my students about this all the time, about thinking about the dogs that don't bark, right? So countries like Russia, Turkey, and Israel, we all know that those are countries that try to project their power in lots of ways, but they're not gaining these leadership positions very often. So on the one hand, maybe you might think, you know, how have they not realized the importance of these roles and tried to get them? But I think on the other hand, maybe this points out that just because you are powerful, you might not have a leadership position in the bag. I think really it would be fascinating to be a fly on the wall at the U.S. (laughs) State Department and see whether and how they're thinking about these patterns and if they're worried about China's goals for IO leadership. They've mounted some pretty thorough campaigns in the past against certain Chinese candidates, like we talked about earlier. Uh, during the campaign for the the Secretary General of the World Intellectual Property Organization um, and also for the Food and Agricultural Organization in 2019. But I wonder if these uh, campaigns against Chinese candidates are isolated events or if it's part of a a broader strategy that seeks to prevent China gaining leadership in IOs. In your paper, you emphasize that answering the questions surrounding China's rising influence in international organizations matters. Yeah. Can you expand upon why research of this kind is important and what is the next step for U.S. policymakers and academics from here? Great. Yeah, that's a great question, Kylie. The, the why does this matter question mm-hmm. is always, always a good one to wrestle with. Uh, I think these findings are important because many argue that China's increasing influence in IELTS could be dangerous. For example, there have been a lot of accusations that when in power, Chinese leaders tend to undermine the democratic and human rights norms that are the mainstay of many IOs. When Margaret Chan was the director general of the World Health Organization from 2007 to 2018, there were claims that she kind of acted unilaterally and sort of did her own thing rather than adhering to the desires of member states and taking important issues to to the floor of the General Assembly to vote on. Um, But it's important for us to move from anecdotal worrying to stronger theoretical and historical analysis. We're trying to establish and more empirical analysis of how Chinese leadership affects IO's outcomes. Yeah, Josh, you're absolutely right. I think while there is good reason to worry, we we also really need to think about the alternative argument. International organizations are designed in lots of ways to try to prevent individual countries from overly controlling them. Otherwise, they'd lose their legitimacy, right? They'd cease to exist. So 
you know, Josh and I don't want to be too quick to jump on the fear-mongering bandwagon. I think that state influence in these IOs is not maybe always undesirable. And in particular, I think some of the patterns that we see, right, allowing the rotation of leadership positions, that probably does something to increase states' confidence in these IOs and make states a lot more willing to participate in international cooperation. And so providing China a leadership role sometimes, right, might keep that state operating within these international organizations that the U.S. cares really deeply about, right? We helped create them in our own image. And so this means that rather than exiting and setting up um, international organizations that are completely in China's own image, um, which they're also doing, right? Josh talked about the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank before. Um, before we move on to the last question, I did kind of want to circle back. Um, you mentioned the World Health Organization particularly and how China is the second largest contributor after the United States. How have you found the role of the United States to be integral in China's kind of rise in leadership, especially considering um Factors like the United States' critical view of the World Health Organization and eventual withdrawal, which would put China as the leading contributor in that sense. It's a, it's a really good question. You know, Josh talked a little bit about some of the campaigns that the U.S. is engaging with behind the scenes. And I think that that's important, some of these conversations. Obviously, we can't get in on some of those conversations and see what's happening. So that's tougher for us to analyze. But I think that another thing I think about here is that the United States has had kind of very different approaches to the World Health Organization with different uh, presidents. I've seen a different approach with the Biden administration as the United States is back in the World Health Organization. And it's not perfect by any stretch. But I think one of the things that I hope some of the member states are doing now is a little navel gazing and recognizing that individual states do have perhaps a lot more influence than we otherwise recognized. And maybe there'll be some, you know, reforms or desi design decisions um, to change some of that individual state influence that goes against the grain of, you know, global governance or cooperation. Yeah, if I could, if I could jump in for a second, Absolutely. too, especially with respects to funding and how IOs are funded, there is a lot of literature that suggests that when an IO relies on voluntary contributions for funding, which most IOs do, that gives a lot of power to the state that is giving the money to control um, the outlook and the approach that the international organization takes. And so there's a lot of critiques that rather than representing a truly multilateral forum, IOs oftentimes represent more of a bilateral Mm -hmm. uh, way of acting in which a member state like the United States or like China provides a lot of money to the IO for the IO to act in line with the United States and China's foreign policy interests. And so that's another object for consideration that we're looking into, um, that sort of coupling effect between leadership and funding. And it's a slippery slope, right? Because Individual countries constantly want to try to project or protect, I should say, a little bit of their sovereignty, right? So they kind of want to have a little bit of control. And exactly what Josh was saying, one of the ways they do that is they tie or they their aid or they, you know, figure out ways to set up trust funds that they can direct more. Um, but you've seen some of the downsides that we've talked about. 
Josh, for you, what has it been like to work so closely with a professor on such a research project? Josh, only the good stuff, only the good only stuff. Only the good stuff, of course. <laughs> um, no, but it's all been good. It's It's been a very rewarding experience so far. I've been working with Dr. Fabulous on this project for about three months, and I, I hope and look forward to continue working with her throughout the summer um, and into next year uh, as, we, as we see where this goes. But I took over for another student when she graduated, so I focused a lot on data collection and research design, and it's been a really rewarding experience to learn so much about the research process, but then also to you know, run into a few roadblocks along the way and have to have to meet with Dr. Fabulous and say, okay, there's no data on this. Like, it would be really great if there was something that said, oh, you know, when China is in power, they do all these terrible things to everyone else with the WHO. But, you know, that's just that's just not the case. Um, and so it's it's sort of hard to navigate around that, but a, a fun, a fun thing to grow in. And yeah, it's been great so far. Yeah, if I could, if I could chime in, I think one of the best things about working with students is they get to see how the proverbial sausage is made, right? And while I love, you know, sort of laying out a perfect, you know, agenda and design for exactly what role the students will play, I think the students get to see some of the really tough questions that I noodle on as a professor and that there isn't always kind of a perfectly carved out road. And I really gain in just having the conversations with the students and going back and forth and being able to brainstorm together. So I'm incredibly grateful that Pepperdine pays so much attention to engaging with students on research. And I think that this project is absolutely better for the fact that I've had uh, three different students work with me on this. It takes a little bit more time, but I think that it's, it's better as a result. So in terms of methodology, it's actually been pretty multifaceted. So like we talked about before, I think a really good first step for any research project is to get a survey of the literature. And the literature review here took quite a lot of time, I think, because of what we said before. You know, we recognize that there was a void, but you don't want to speak to silence. So you have to find other things that you can tap into. And that just meant going sort of broader than um, the research we normally would look at. So that was the first step. I think the second step was documenting leadership, and that was going on each of the different international organization websites. Um, you know, Google was our friend, and creating a big database for all of the different demographics about leaders. So, you know, we talked before about surprising findings or not. Maybe this isn't that surprising, but women have not been in many of these leadership positions. So that was sort of a documentation exercise, and then coming up with some really easy sort of pivot charts and graphs um, because we don't need to overthink that. And then I would say the bulk of what still remains is what we've talked about, um, kind of looking at uh, a mixed methodology approach, doing some qualitative work as well as quantitative work. And Josh can dive into some of that right now on how we're looking at funding for the World Health Organization. I mean, yeah, we have a, a couple yeah. different budget areas of interest. So we're looking at you know spending by region the WHO spending by region per year, um, and then uh, contributions, who's giving what to the WHO. So that's been, our, that's been our quantitative data. And then our qualitative data, we're looking at some of the things we're considering as like different paths to leadership, um, sort of like following the campaign trail, what did China do in order to obtain their leadership positions? And they recently lost leadership in some organizations. So asking, was that a contested election or, or was it just a sort of natural um, changing of the guard, as, as we see in, in many I.O. Um, transfers of power. 
Well, thanks one last time to Dr. Fabulous and Josh for joining me here today. Oh I'm my gosh, definitely... it was so fun. Was I feel time. like a celebrity <laughs> in the <laughs> studio. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. I'm definitely leaving with lots to think about, especially um, about what you said on the role of the individual in international relations. Especially as we're watching really, really important individuals, I mean, in a different kind of capacity, but I don't think that anybody would argue with you right now, Kylie, that... Putin's individual leadership qualities matter with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and that Volodymyr um, Zelensky's leadership capabilities, of course, they matter. So I think we all have that sense, right? But, you know, trying to um, nail some of this jello to the wall is what we're trying to do. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast episode was edited by Kylie Jones. Tune in next time for a conversation with Lydia Cho about the impact of harmful body imaging in anime.